Thanks, Dan, and thank all of you for being here tonight. I'm Jimmy, Paulist over alcohol. I'm extremely grateful to be here. And uh, I wore my green vest. <laughs> but you know, as Irish, you don't have to wear green because you can always tell an Irishman. Never tell him much. That's a... <laughs> they say, you know, if it wasn't for the booze or the alcohol, the Irish would rule the world. <laughs> but since I came into AA, and even this program, the thing I miss most about my Irish heritage, the thing I miss most is not having or enjoying those uh, uh, seven-course Irish meals that consist of a boiled potato and a six-pack. <laughs> I guess all the Irish can relate to that. But I, I mentioned I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful to be here. You see, uh, gratitude is such an important cornerstone of my sobriety. Uh, I have three areas of gratitude that to me are necessary for a good sound sobriety. Three areas of which I'm really grateful for. I mean, many other areas outside of that, but these three areas to me are mandatory. Number one, I'm so grateful, so grateful that I understand that I am powerless over alcohol. I didn't know that for a while. I knew uh, before I came in this program, I began to realize it was the alcohol, it was the it was the booze that was really the seat of my problems. I began to understand that. So what I thought I would do is just cut down, just only have a few now and then, you know, not knowing that an alcoholic cannot do that. An alcoholic cannot have just one. I have one drink, one drink, and I have a, a powerful compulsion for a second. I have that second, and I have even greater compulsion for a third. That's alcoholism. That's being powerless over alcohol. And... Uh, so I, I, when I came in AA, I still didn't understand how this program worked because uh, I didn't know that powerlessness meant that I could not have one drink. You see, if I abstain from one drink every day, I can't get drunk. And the first time I heard that at a meeting, a guy says, well, if you don't take one drink, you can't get drunk. I said, did you hear that genius, you know? But I hear a lot of things in, in this program when I first came in that kind of, uh, I kind of ridiculed in my mind, but began to understand, this, this is philosophy, this is wisdom, and this is where it is in the simplest form. I used to think that uh, uh, I could never stand in the same ballpark with a philosopher. I thought, you know, I would never be able to even have a conversation with someone who was deemed as some kind of a philosopher. And then I began to realize and understand that philosophy, my friends, Philosophy is nothing but common sense explained. Sometimes uh, I had a lot of time to read at one time, a lot of time. And I read people like Sir Bacon and uh, some of the philosophers. I just happened to read them and just went find where they're at, you know. And, but every time they, they, some astounding, say, a statement was made in a philosophical manner, I would say to myself, gee, I knew that. I really did. I just, it never really come out of me. It never surfaced or I never practiced, but I knew that. And there isn't anything in this life that we don't already know. Did you know that? When I speak tonight, I'll tell you something. When I speak tonight, I will probably say something that may be helpful to you that you never heard before. <clears throat> but please believe me, this isn't really new to you because this is the way I learned in, in, in this program and I'm starting to learn in life that everything I think is new to me is simply something that's already inside me that's been woken up. You see, when my God created me, and I speak about my God, my program, and what gives me a good day every day, then you may not have a God or believe in the same one as me, that's your prerogative. But my God, my God has not held back anything from me. All the ingredients for everything I need in this life already inside me and I'm finding that out in sobriety in sobriety all the inner joy inner peace inner happiness all the patience everything is already in there and you know the, the, I, I read a lot about gold uh, the gold rush in what was it 1876 weren't you there Dan I don't know <laughs> And so many of them prospectors would go out with their little mule and their, their lunch and whatever, and they would go for years and years panning for gold and everything. It might be just that far from it. Never know it. 
some newcomer come along and wow, he strikes gold and this poor sucker's been out there for a year or two and he's out of luck, this guy made the fine. But let me tell you something. When I was looking for what I used to call happiness, I was looking for the best things in life, I was always looking out there somewhere, trying to catch him from something or someone else. <laughs> they were already here. They were already in here. And I'll explain that as I go on, because for me, that is one of the major importance of sobriety. Sobriety to me, my friends, is not just not drinking a day at a time. If I don't drink a day at a time, that's just not drinking a day at a time. And the same mind that drank will always want to drink. The same mind that drank will never be content in these rooms. Did you know that? The very same mind that drank, the alcoholic mind, will never be content here. It will be foreign in here. It will be a foreigner in these rooms. It's like taking a wild animal out of the woods and you bring it in the house to keep it warm and put a blanket on it. That animal don't want to know nothing about that or want to know about it. It wants to go back out in the cold and snow. And that's a, a, some, someone in here with the alcoholic mind <laughs> in a place where sobriety is being demonstrated will feel so out of place. And that's why some people talk about the program, <laughs> those that don't want it or don't accept it. What am I trying to say? Well, I don't have one mind. Gee, you know, a guy, a person's created with just one mind. No, my friends. You know, I came in here with an alcoholic mind. I came in here with a human mind, as I call it. I came in here with a carnal mind. Carnal doesn't really mean something lachivous all the while. It just means that it goes after lust of the flesh. Overeating can be one thing, you know. Sitting and watching the boob tube for hours and hours and hours when I should be doing something else. These are lusts of the flesh. This is the carnal mind. And so I brought that mind into here. And I didn't drink for a day at a time and I was a walking time bomb for months and months. I was still angry, resentful, pitiful, guilty because I was of the same mind, even though I wasn't drinking a day at a time. So I couldn't have said I was two or three months sober. No. I was two or three months without a drink. For me, sobriety is not drinking a day at a time in absence of inner turmoil. In absence of inner turmoil. In other words, free. This program, after the first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and we have to admit to that. You know why? We have to admit to that first. It's usually on the wall somewhere. But you read your steps. The very first part of the very first step, in other words, in the beginning, we admitted we were powerless because until I admit that I'm powerless, you see, this is an illness, and there can be no healing, no healing until first we admit to the illness. We must admit to it first. If I come into these rooms months and months and maybe even a year without taking a drink, and I can interpret every bit of them, steps and traditions. I can read that big book, and I can tell you, just say I could tell you all about that big book and what it means but not one of that would do me any good if I mix it with one drink did you know that I don't care I can mix it with one drink and none of it will do me any good because now I'm back with the alcoholic mind I must admit that I'm that I'm powerless over that first drink and powerlessness is so important to remember powerlessness I know some fellas People, if, if, the longer we're around here, we'll see people, God love them, come in, hang around a while, and go back out and drink. And I used to talk to a few, and I used to listen, because that was important to me, because I never went back out. Now, I was wondering what went through their minds, or what caused that. And I've heard different reasons. The main reason is that they were no longer grateful for what little sobriety they had. Did you understand that? If you're not grateful, you're not going to keep that which you got anyway. If you're not grateful, you don't deserve anything more. You have a child or something, and he's growing up, and you give him things, and he throws them against the leaf. We're going to keep giving him things for him. You're not going to keep that which you're not grateful for. But one of the things I used to hear when I come in these rooms is somebody would say, well, you know, I listen to people talking. I never went to jail. I never had a DUI. I never went to the nut house. I never went to a rehab. I never slept under the bridge. I never lost a job, so I didn't think I was alcoholic. I never wore a trench coat in the morning with a hip flask in my pocket and drank. I never bummed nickels and dimes. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. You see, what the average person coming in tries to do is identify with what they think an alcoholic is. And we all come in with, I even myself came in 
I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. I know I drink too much, but what's this alcoholic? What does the alcoholic do that I think I identify with? And I tried to identify. That was the problem. You see, the first part of the first step, I keep looking for Remember where I go to on the wall. Dan's got him on the floor. <laughs> first time of life, to get ahead, you got to look down and set up. <laughs> the first part of the first step does not say we admitted we were alcoholics. The genius and the wisdom and the spiritual not, uh, uh, guidance in writing that first step said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. We could all identify with that. Now, they call that alcoholism. What if they called it, you know, they had to name this program, what if they called it beerism, or liquorism, or drunkenism? They named it alcoholism because it had to do with alcohol. But the problem, alcohol means, alcoholic means powerless over the first drink. So that's what we have to grasp and understand. Am I powerless over that first drink? I know I am. One of the one of the most uh, uh, magnanimous ways to identify with whether you're powerless or not is, I'll just give you an example. Before I came in the program, a fellow called me once, it was winter, I, I'm from up north, up in New York, upstate New York, Syracuse. says, come on over, Jimmy, it's Sunday, we're watching the football game. He says, he calls me up and says, Joe's coming over and he's bringing a six-pack. Now, I counted, you know, six beers and one, two, three of us. I didn't go. <laughs> Would you have gone? You see, because when I drink, I drink for the effect. And if you can identify with that, I didn't drink for no other reason. I drank for the effect of what the alcohol could do for me, get me high, that nice warm glow, that giddy feeling, or whatever the hell it was that come from it. That's why I drank. I drank for no other reason. No other reason person said to me once, and then maybe you could identify with Jimmy, if Kool-Aid did to you what alcohol did you, would you keep drinking Kool-Aid? And I says, no, unless I could get high from it, and the same thing with all of you. Unless you could get high from it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, drink Kool-Aid if it gave you headaches and heartaches and hangovers and lonely days and lonely nights and wasted days and wasted nights and DUIs and lost families and lost jobs and into, into the slammers, would you keep drinking Kool-Aid? No. But if you got that high, that warm glow, and your system craved more Kool-Aid, craved it, I might be talking at a Kool-Aid Anonymous tonight. There would have to be one. I'm only trying to make, make you see, because I know the seriousness of this alcoholism, and I know we have some new people here tonight. And, and coming in like I did. Well, what is it? What if I did drink again? What would happen? You don't know. That's what alcoholism is. You don't know. You might take your car and run it into a tree and kill yourself or kill somebody else. You don't know what you're going to do. We think we do, but we don't. And so anyway, powerlessness, well, first I'm so grateful that I realize that I am powerless over that first drink. So grateful. Now, Second area of gratitude for me is the fact that there are places like this that I can come to to retain and improve upon what sobriety I have. I can come to here and listen to you people. I can hear from the big book. I can hear tapes. I can listen to all of you collectively or individually. And I can improve upon my sobriety. I'm so grateful. First, I'm so grateful that I, that I finally realized that I'm powerless over the first drink, but suppose there's no place to go or nothing to do about it. And that's the way it was before AA was formed. They went to hospitals. They went to psychiatrists. They went to jails. They're trying to figure, what do we do with this guy? He just keeps drinking. He says he wants to stop, and I think he's serious. But nobody knew how. So now we've got a place to go to. We can get educated. And that's what we do in here. In fact, what we're really doing is coming to these rooms and re-educating our minds, re-educating, which means going from the, from the alcoholic mind to the sober mind, re-educating our minds. And that's what's important. So if you come in like I am, a sort of a know-it-all, you're in for a big, uh, a rude awakening because there's so much to learn in here about this new way of living and thinking and acting and feeling. The feeling that comes with the thoughts is unbelievable. 
So now we've got two areas of gratitude that I realize I'm powerless over the first drink, that there's a place where I can come to and improve upon my sobriety. Now listen to this. Listen to this, sir. Listen to this. I am so grateful, so powerfully, extremely grateful on a daily basis that I have a desire to stay sober, that I have a desire to add to what I already have, that I have a powerful desire. Because without that desire, wouldn't it be something to know that you're powerless over alcohol, to know there's a place you can go to for it, but have no desire to do it, no desire whatsoever? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Unbelievable. Wouldn't it be something to be sitting in these rooms wishing you were out there in those saloons? And in the beginning, I can understand that because we still have that obsession that's, that's in a sense, has possessed us and is crawling around inside us. And that alcoholic system is screaming for a drink maybe for the first few days or a week or so. I can understand that. But you also have to understand that that will leave. That will leave if you attach your mind to the new way of thinking and living. But to have that desire to stay here, without that desire, a person sitting in these rooms wishing they were out there or being in the saloons knowing they should be in here, that's what I call a double-minded person, my friends. And a double-minded person will never be content. Never be content. There's a thing my, my God talks about serving two masters. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. That's why so many in those saloons hate us guys and hey, hey. They've been here and they chose to go back out there. So you cannot serve two. Not only that, alcoholism will not permit it. Will not permit it. You'll either be drunk or sober. You hear it sometimes, they call it something like pregnant. You are young. Well, there's no way. Uh, a friend of mine, he passed away, God bless him. He, he sponsored a lot of people. And this one woman was asking, your sponsor was acting funny for two months. I said to her, he said, you've been drinking? And she said, well, not really. Now, what does not really mean? <laughs> Either way, you well, maybe she had some of that Kool-Aid. I don't know. Be so grateful that if you finally believe and understand that you're powerless over the first drink, that is the first step to victory. There can be no healing until first we admit to this. Be so grateful there's a place to go that you can learn and understand about sobriety. And, and the more I hear about it, the stronger I get within. My, so, my sobriety becomes stronger. And be so grateful for those that are here tonight. However you got here, try to attain a real desire to become a new and better, different person, because that's what we have to do if to put down the drink a day at a time. And so this is what's so important. I remember, uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't always tell my story as you say it, because I just love to talk about getting sober and staying sober and the great feelings and the great things that happened in my life about it. But briefly, I, when I was in school, I didn't like school. and. Uh, uh, I was in high school and finally I was three years and still a freshman or something and I figured I got to do something. But I started boxing. I was an amateur fighter and uh, I won the, the Golden Gloves in New York. I won the light heavyweight championship and after that I fought the guy that won the heavyweight and I, and I, held, I, 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 uh, I headlined all the local amateur cards in New York State, parts of Pennsylvania, parts of Canada. And I was quite a comer and I had quite an ability and I would rather do this than go to school or go to work and I don't know why. And this is what I was doing. And uh, then it was later on that, that I, I was out with the fellows. You know, we, talk, we hear a lot about peer pressure in schools and all and, and peer pressure, wherever you go, especially children, peer pressure. Geez, uh, you know, there's so many people doing wrong that my one that's doing right will be influenced by the others. And that's what peer pressure really is, more or less is influenced. Uh, but when I took my first drink, I was out with uh, a few of the guys. I used to go out with them when I was training now and then. They'd have their beer shots or whatever, and I'd have my Pepsi or Coke or something. And the peer pressure wasn't that nobody twisted my arm. Nobody would dare. <laughs> nobody put a gun to my head. Nobody had to. It's just that I was with these fellows, and I saw them enjoying these. I finally said, let me try one of them beers. And I took one beer. I didn't want a drink. 
I wasn't, uh, most uh, you tell you, like they want to drive, the first thing they want to do is learn how to drive, uh, they want to be able to drink, they want to be able to do this. I didn't want to do that. I did not want to drink. I was the all-American boy. I wanted to stay that way. I loved my milk. Homogenized. I loved it. But I'll tell you something. I took that one beer, and the beer consumed me. Wow, what a warm glow, what a feeling. And I had another and another and another. I had six or seven. The next day on my road work, next morning, I was so light and fast like a Giselle. A real pew. Wow, I said, this is great. I'm going to incorporate this in my training. <laughs> and I did. But not because I wanted to so much. It's because I had to. Understand, I was alcoholic and didn't know it. I took that first drink and I was gone. It had me. It had me. And now we go out at, in the evenings a lot with the guys and a few girls now and then and this and that. And they say, come on, Jimmy, it's time to go. you got to get up and do your road work. Oh, no, let's have another one. Let's have and that's the way it really was. And I turned professional because I was, I was, uh, I did have a lot of talent and I was going some places. But all of a sudden, I started missing that road work. I started missing those days in the gymnasium. My timing got off. And I got a real poor feeling, a feeling almost as bad, almost as bad as some of them hangovers and headaches that I had from alcohol. That feeling was losing to someone that I knew I could be, losing to someone simply because I wasn't in condition. And this, this alcoholism is a disease of denial. By denial is the fact that I experienced it right away. I never blamed it on the booze. I blamed it on, well, you're staying out too late, you're hanging around, you're not eating right, you missed your road work, but never because of alcohol. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recognize that fact. And anyway, uh, I started to track the eyes of some underworld figures that used to hang around the gymnasiums and like that, and I'm talking about organized crime. And uh, they lay out a lot of money and uh, uh, very low interest rates, and uh, sometimes they need someone to pick it up, as they say, or collect it for them. And uh, some people are reluctant to pay or whatever. And I fit that description pretty good. Six foot two, some kind of a boxing champion and whatever in gym. So I used to go out and, uh, and uh, do a little collecting, as you might say. Uh, one of the big attractions of this type of job is I didn't have to fill out an application. And uh, so there I was. And, and I began to immediately realize the consequences of this way of thinking. Now, notice I didn't say this way of living. You ever hear a, read a, a story about someone, uh, whether it's true or, or biography or, or a novel or a movie or something, the life and times of so-and-so, and they always say, well, this is, this is the way he lived, this is the way she lived, this is what they... You know, understand this. When I said I began to suffer the consequences of my thinking, I didn't say I, became, I, became to understand, I began to suffer the consequences of that way of living. You see, I cannot live in any manner unless first I think that way. I cannot live in any manner unless first I think that way. Uh, uh, alcoholism, active alcoholism and drinking, it's a state of mind. Did you know that? I mean, it's a compulsion, it's a disease. But the alcoholic mind, that's a state of mind, a certain state. And let me tell you this. Sobriety is another state. That's why I say we have to release ourselves from the alcoholic mind. We have to release ourselves from the mind that caused all our problems in life. The mind that caused all these problems and isn't smart enough to solve them, or it wouldn't have caused them in the first place. You see, the alcoholic mind that created the problems isn't smart enough to solve them. I used to try and solve my problems with another drink. And I'd just go in deeper and deeper and deeper. And please believe me, an alcoholic, when he gets himself in a rut, you know what he does? He furnishes it and moves right in. We have to understand that I need a new and different and better life. And I can only attain that through a sober mind. A new state of mind. Sobriety is a state of mind. It's a blissful state. Please believe me. If you're truly sober, it's a blissful state, and I love it. But what I'm trying to say is that I began suffering the consequences. They gave me two one years in the local pound, consecutive. That means you do one and then you do the other. The wind-up is, is now I'm involved with underworld figures, organized crime, and uh, <clears throat> this is the way I'm starting to live. 
And uh, uh, and I just briefly, you know, not even to tell my story here tonight, as far as my my uh, my alcoholic story is. Uh, it, See, I'm 65 years old, and if I don't look at it, it's because jail preserves you. <laughs> and I, uh, in 50, I don't know, 54, 56, I was, I was charged, well, <clears throat> of safe cracking. Now, safe cracking is when you take money out of a safe that doesn't belong to you, and, and the state police really frowned on this because it was across the highway from their barracks. And I got five years probation. And a year or so later, I got charged with trying to relieve a jewelry store of its valuables. And uh, the, uh, this time, I got a violation of probation. I got a year in the pen. And then this went on and on. And, and, uh, and at the same time, I was drinking, and I was trying to pay lawyers, and trying to live that life. And I, like I mentioned, I ought to turn professional, and I was fighting. They opened up a new war memorial in Syracuse, New York, and they said, you know, this is somebody's going to make themselves a lot of money in this new building and whatever. And a lot of people thought I would be that guy. And they matched me for the, with a, uh, a very good up-and-coming fighter out of New York City. And uh, we're up in Syracuse, and I'm in tremendously good shape for once in my life. And we were signing for the fight, and I remember the promoter said, who was one of the most famous promoters at that time uh, in, in the 50s, and, uh, and he says, Jimmy, he had a bar, a big bar and a restaurant, and all the fight crowd hung out there. You know, the bars, we got all the fight pictures behind the bar and on the walls, and the newspaper people were down there and everything. He said, before you sign for this fight, he says, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And I says, uh, what's that, Norm? And he said, uh, well, I'm going to ask you to post, and he mentioned a, a high, a thousand, many thousand dollars uh, 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 appearance bond. I says, an appearance bond? I said, you mean uh, that I'll show up for this fight? And he says, yeah, that's what I mean. You want me to put up a bond that I'll show up for this fight before you let me sign? And he says, yeah. I says, what are you, crazy, Norm? Number one, I can beat that bum. And number two, this is the way I make a living. What you think? I'm not going to show up. I don't know if you ever got messages like this when you were drinking, but here's what he said to me. He said, Jimmy, myself and many others in this town have got a lot of faith in you. But I, for one, know there's too many saloons between your house and the War Memorial. That's just what he told me. And you know, the guy was right. The fight was about three weeks away. I got the bond up, we signed, and I had, I don't remember how many, classic drunks between we signed that fight and the night of the fight. Classic drunks. This guy knew what he was talking about. But when he told me that, I just slipped it like you do a left hand, you know, just like that. Too many saloons. I just got that go right by. The alcoholic mind wouldn't accept that. And I experienced that horrible, horrible, horrible feeling that night in the ring. I lost to somebody that I knew I could beat. And I lost because I wasn't in good condition. And I, lost, I never blamed it on the drink. I said, well, you know, you did. You missed that gym. You didn't train right. You didn't... You see, the alcoholic mind of denial wouldn't allow me to admit to that. And I went back to the underworld figures, and let me tell you something, I got really involved. And I started to become a big man in the underworld. And uh, uh, 1961 was the last time I fought, and I fought in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was a good fight town until they closed up the coal mines and started giving us gas heat and oil heat. And uh, uh, same thing happened. I got drunk two nights before the fight, and I lost down there, and I vowed. I knew that boxing was like a religion. I knew that uh, many times I've seen courage and determination overcome talent. And you'll see it on TV many times when you watch the fights. Or in any, any area of life, it doesn't have to be an athletic event. Courage and determination would overcome talent if talent wasn't in condition itself. And that's what was happening to me. So I knew it was a religion. And I knew I couldn't practice this religion because I could not get up anymore and do that roadwork. A new desire was taken over in my life, a powerful compulsion to drink daily. And I had to do it. I had to do it. And so I never went back in the gymnasiums again. And in 1964, a young lady uh, said I was good enough to marry her, and I did. And uh, it didn't last that long, though. And we're great friends today because of sobriety, and she's living in California and doing fine. And I'm here, and I think I'm doing fine. But what happened was, I don't know how many in this room, I got married in, in February of uh, 61, 
and got word that the grand jury was sitting on what they call flim flame charges, confidence scores, and they were going to indict me. And uh, so we took off on our honeymoon to Baltimore, Maryland from Syracuse, New York. Like I said, how many of you in this room have ever been extradited on your honeymoon? I was. And it doesn't make for a very good beginning of a, of a marriage. And I was lodged in the county jail, and I got a, an extremely well-known, uh, very young man, criminal lawyer, very dynamic, handsome, the girls used to say it. And they used to crowd the, the courtroom just to watch this guy in action. What a showman he was, you know. But yet he was so knowledgeable in law and so effective. He had a booming courtroom voice. And I'm telling you, he take a guy like me and make me look like the Pope. <laughs> he could do it. He could do it. And he'd take that pitcher of water, the glass, you know, and that big pitcher of water, and, and everything, everything, just while he's pouring the water, raise it up and lower. Everything was for show. And he summed up this case, this particular case that I was in, and, and he had his glasses, which he hardly ever wore, and he's pounding that table when he's making his point, just pounding it. And the whole jury's waiting for them glasses to crack, crack and break. And we come back and sit down, and I says, Frank, you're going to break them glasses. He says, take a look. There was no glass in them. This guy was a showman emeritus. <laughs> and he'd get me acquitted every time. We had, we had such success together. And it used to be, if Jimmy goes to trial, you can see Frank. And if Frank's trying the case, you can go and see Jimmy. You know, it was getting like that. And I was becoming a big man in the underworld, you know, silk shirts and suits and wide brim hats and and double-breasted overcoats. That's the way we dressed in those days. And I still do. Somebody says, hey, geez, look, you're still in the 40s. Well, maybe I am. I don't know, but I'm not drinking. I don't I guess that's all that really counts. And uh, But what happened was I got married and I, go to, and I got extradited and brought back, and we went to trial on this flim-flam uh, charge, and uh, it made major headlines, and, uh, uh, and I got acquitted at trial. Frank got me off again, you know, and... Uh, Wow, and then everybody was coming to him. All the hoods, you know, all the all the, all the mob guys wanted this guy Frank, and uh, uh, they wanted me too. I'm a, I'm Irish, and I was working with you know with the Italians, the Siciliano, and whatever. And uh, but uh, we got along great, and I didn't have no real allegiance to them. But uh, they'd bring me in on certain things, and sometimes I'd have something I needed a little help, and they'd bring them in, and that's the way it worked. But anyway, the wind up is is in 1964. This is just one year. Now this is this. Please believe me when I tell you this. This isn't so much that I was running afoul of the law. What this is is that I was pursuing the alcohol. I was, it was the alcoholism and the pursuit of alcohol that caused this in 1964. In just one year, I got indicted in Chautauqua County down below Buffalo, New York, nine counts of forgery. Made bail, went back into the saloons. In 1964, I got indicted on 54 counts of forgery in Onondaga County. I went back out on, on bail and back into the schools. I got indicted in 1964 on accessory to robbery one. I went back out on bail and, and back into the schools and I got indicted again on robbery in the first degree. Now the DA says, Your Honor, this guy's been to the well too many times. Now you figure what he meant by that. But in uh, the bonding company was going to think I might be coming a risk. So the bail was impossible. Just I had to put up the Taj Mahal for property and whatever. Not that saloon down the street. I'm talking about the one over where is it in India or somewhere? <laughs> that one. And I didn't have that at the time. I was in jail. So uh, in this, so there were. I was in the county jail, and Frank was my lawyer was working on my cases cases, and uh, in the summer of '64 I got indicted by the U.S. government. Uh, uh, the federal government on a $450,000 postal money order swindle, and this time no bail was even considered. But long story short, because I, you know, I could, you know, probably uh, flatter a lot of people with this type of uh, sick living, <laughs> who some of us seem to be attracted to and enjoy. But I like to speed through that and talk about my sobriety. And number one is this, that uh, we went to trial and uh, on the on the robbery one. Now I had the safe conviction. That means two felonies if convicted. That means a maximum of 60 years in New York State. I don't care what you do. Don't do nothing wrong up there. You think these southern sheriffs are bad, but those uh, criminal laws up there are vicious. 
60 years, and I'm telling my lawyer, they ain't got nothing on me. He says, they ain't got nothing on you, have they? And I says, no. He says, well, listen to this. He says, I want, you know that judge that had all your cases in front of you? He says, all these different bails? And I says, yeah, Frank, he's visiting me in the county jail. He says, well, I went, you know, he went on vacation, and I caught this new guy that's sitting in, this, this judge that's taken over while he's gone, and I went and tried to consolidate them all into one bail, one bail, so you can get out of here and uh, assist me in this case. What he wanted to do is go out and pull a score and give him some more money. I know what he wanted. He said, what the hell did you do in this town? And I said, what are you talking about? And he says, well, that judge told me <laughs> that he was one of the guys you swindled. And I said, oh, man. So I had to send for pajamas and a toothbrush and everything else. And sure enough, you know, we all watch the O.J. Simpson case and a few others today. Now they get this court TV and everything. But I was an expert on juries. You know, they call these people in that are experts on juries. Well, you've been to trial as many times as I have. You've been around lawyers like I have picking juries, and your friends are on trial. You get to know the juries. You know who to pick for, who to pick. Uh, such as one. This is the wisdom of my lawyer, Frank. Uh, I was going to trial on, on one thing. Uh, I forget what the hell that was, but... Uh, uh, we had this guy was uh, uh, head basketball coach for Le Moyne University, and the guy was really a tremendously likable guy, and he was quite an athlete in his day. And I says, Frank, you know, this guy will find out. We'll, we'll let him know certain ways, you know, that I was a prize fighter. Now, this guy's an athlete, and he may relate to us. It might be good. He says, that might be good, Jimmy. He said, but here's the way I look at it. Supposing he doesn't like you, and we get in that jury room, and he gives them jurors a pep talk, <laughs> and they ain't on your side. And I says, well, you're right. So we would, what they call, we strike that juror. He, if he was for me, it would have been great, but if he was against me, he'd have given his pep talk, and <clears throat> I'd have went back. But we come back, and anyway, it's saying, like, I know the jury, you know, they come out, and the men look down, <clears throat> and the women, or they look up, and the women are dabbing their eyes with a handkerchief, and your lawyer leans over and he says, we're dead. <laughs> and you know, I think of the big 60 years they're going to hand me, and I lean back to him and I say, what do you mean we, Frank? You know, me. I'm dead. And you begin to learn right away that I have to suffer for the consequences of my own decisions in life. These were major decisions I made in life to run around with underworld figures. You know? Now i got to suffer the consequences. I said, earlier, and I talk about sobriety, which to me is not drinking a day at a time and absence of inner turmoil. And I said I was suffering the consequences of that way of thinking, not, not that way of living. Here, my friends, is the key to sobriety. We're going to talk about it right now. I mean, after we put down the drink a day at a time, after we put down the drink a day at a time, if I don't change, if I don't engender into the, into the spiritual part of this AA program, I'm the same person that drank and that person will want to drink again. I'm the same person of the same mind, and that same mind will start or continue to create problems in my life that isn't smart enough to solve or wouldn't create them in the first place. I must take on a new mind if I want a new and better life. And here's how you do it. Here's how I did it anyway. But anyway, I went into that county jail. Now, they're into that... Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, I got convicted. Now, I was in that county jail over a year because of no bail and contesting all these indictments and whatever and going to trial and all that. And in that county jail... I became a real good guy. I always liked people anyway. I was kind of a, a real likable guy as a hood. I mean, uh, I remember a time this, uh, uh, well, I was, let me tell you how good I was. This lady lived outside of uh, the city in, in this little, it wasn't really a shack, but it was almost a shack, and she didn't have nothing, and she used to make this pot of soup, and we'd come in, and we'd have soup with her. She knew we were all hoods, you know, but uh, she never asked any questions. We'd leave her some money, you know, and... And we'd see her maybe every three, four months, maybe once a year, I don't know, but every so often we'd sit and see her. And we happened to go see her, and it was cold out. And this is before the landlord-tenant laws, rules, or whatever. I'm talking way back in the 50s. And, uh, and uh, she was crying. What's the matter with you? And she said, well, the landlord, you know, uh, he's coming, <clears throat> and he's going to wants the rent, and I don't have it. And if he don't pay the rent, he's going to throw her out. He already told her he's going to throw her out. And... Uh, I said, who is this guy? And uh, she said his name and one of the guys with me. She said, Jimmy, I know that guy. He's a Simon Legree. You know, this guy's sucker. He will. He'll throw her out. And I said, well, when does he come for the rent? She says, on Thursday the 1st. I says, when? 
She said, well, we're early in the evening. And I said, all right. We gave her the rent money and a few extra dollars and we left. Now, that Thursday, the first of the month, this guy comes and collects his rent early in the evening, you know. And if he collects his rent and he gets and he leaves, you know, about a half a mile down the road, the sucker gets robbed. <laughs> now, I told uh, the, the service unit up in Attica Prison, he says, you say that's good? And I says, well, listen to this. I says, the lady paid her rent, the landlord got his money, and I got my investment back. And I thought it was good business. He says, you can't rob people and get your investment back, Jimmy. That's not the way it should be. But anyway, I was giving guys in the joint cigarettes and, you know, making sure the cigarettes and different things from the commissary. And I was just an all-around good guy. And, you know, I'm a high school dropout, but I could express myself like I am now, I guess. I just had a natural talent. And I would help guys write letters to their wives. You know, a lot of guys couldn't write too well or express themselves, write letters to their wives and children and write to the lawyers and whatever. And uh, you never guess what. What happened? See, I'm tapping in to this universal cosmic law that I'm talking about. We all live under laws. And if we don't know the laws, we miss out. The law of uh, like begets like. When I was drinking and thinking wrong, wrong things were happening. You know, wrong things. Here I am, convicted, two felonies, waiting for sentences. That's the cause of wrong thinking, wrong thinking. See. Now, that's that, my friends, is the cosmic law I'm talking about. I can go over to that light switch. I don't know anything about electricity, nothing at all. In fact, I'm, I'm afraid if, if, if something, I smoke some pops, I'd get away from it, man. I don't know nothing about blue, blue uh, uh, wires and yellow wires. And red, I don't know nothing about that. But I do know if I turn that switch on, these lights will go on. And I don't know nothing about electricity. But I know if I go back over and push the off, it'll go off. I'm a genius. You know, I'm a miracle man. Watch. Bing, 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 bing. And I don't know nothing about electricity. But it works every time. Now listen to this. And if you take anything to bed with you tonight, take this to bed with you. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is amazing. And it's so simple. This is the philosophy that I'm talking about. The, the philosophy that is nothing but common sense explained. In this life, when I said life begets like, like begets like, what I mean is that the harvest must be of the seed. In everything we do in life, the harvest must be of the seed. How did I hear a great orator say it once? Case in point. Case in point. Farmer plants corn and he grows cotton. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's something wrong here. He's on Oprah Winfrey, he's on Jenny Jones, he's on... He planted corn and grew cotton. What happened? I don't know. Do it again. And he does it again. Well, there's something wrong. The harvest, the cotton is not of the seed corn. The harvest, when you plant the seed of corn, you have to grow corn. When you plant potatoes, you must grow potatoes. When you plant roses, you can't grow daffodils. You must have roses. The harvest must be of the seed. Ah. Every thought I give out in this life, I won't say you too, but every thought I give out in this life, every thought will not return void. Will not return void. What does that mean? It means every thought I give out will have an effect on the universe. Not just an effect on the universe, even if it's highly noticeable. Every thought I give out, I am responsible for. And the harvest will be of the seed. If I think poor, poor things will happen. If I think good, good things will happen. This is after we put down the drink, just a simple philosophy. If I continue to think angry, resentful, pitiful, guilty, sorrowful, sad, resentful, that's what I'm going to attract in my life. Because otherwise, if I thought good, or if I thought poor, and good things started happening, then I could go out and plant corn and grow cotton. The universal law of like begets like would be out of whack, and the whole world universe would be chaos. Because I could think wrong and have good things happen. There'd be nothing wrong with thinking wrong. 
And there's nothing to be good about thinking good. Because if I think good, poor things will happen. <laughs> like begets right. <coughs> a negative approach to a negative situation will not give me a positive or healthy result. Or like would not be would not beget like. You see what I'm saying? Do you ever get mad at something or somebody? thinking that that's going to help the situation, it's going to worsen it. It's going to add to it. You know why? If I had a gash on my arm, a cop, and somebody took something that was soiled or contaminated instead of rubbing it in there, anybody that's a nurse or a doctor would know you're only going to aggravate that sore. You're going to contaminate. You're going to make it worse because what you're rubbing in there is just as bad as, what, as, as the cop. You've got to put something healthy and clean and healing in there. And every time my reaction to any given situation, good, bad, or otherwise, whether you know it or not, that's my mental treatment of that situation. My mental treatment, the same as I'm treating my arm. If I think clean and healthy and healing toward a situation, then it will probably become clean and, and, and healthy. But if I think angry, resentful, I'm rubbing contamination into it. This may be hard for a lot of people to grasp, but you may walk out of here saying, that guy's a wacko, <laughs> trying to relate himself to philosophers. Well, I may not be a philosopher, but I think I'm going to be a genius. And the reason I know that is because, is because uh, you know, Albert Einstein? He quit school, and before he quit, the teachers told him that he would never amount to anything, and he went on to become a genius. Well, I remember when the teachers told me I would never amount to nothing, and I quit school, so maybe I'll become a genius, you know, if like begets like. <laughs> but this is what I'm trying to say, that we must change our thinking, and until we do, we are handcuffed, we are bound to a loser. I one day realized that what I was out there was a victim of life, a victim of a day. By a victim, I mean this. A fellow would say to me, Jimmy, you going to have a good day today? This is when I was drinking and raising hell and this and that. And I would say, as maybe anyone in this room might say, I don't know. i got to wait and see what happens. If good things happen, I have a good day. If poor things happen, I have a poor day. What I'm saying is that I'm a victim of the day. I'm a victim of the circumstances. And that isn't why I was created. I wasn't created to be a victim of what goes on out there. And that's because when I used to say if poor things happen, I have a poor day. I was, what it was, that what on about me was more important than what on inside me. And this life of sobriety, this life of spirituality, this life of spiritual fulfillment has finally made me realize that what goes on inside me is more important than what goes on about me. I have my obligations like everyone else, and I do my best to overcome them or, or take care of them, and sometimes I really can't. But it no longer gets inside me. It no longer has two victories. It just has, you know, the fact that maybe I can't always take care of them when I want to, but something always works out if I keep a good attitude about it. If I keep a good attitude about it. I haven't been in jail in 24 years. I've been sober for 23. Does that tell you something? Does that tell you something that changed my thinking? That's all. And there's nothing out there that's bigger than my program, you people, and my God, which is inside me. There's nothing bigger out there. Wow. I used to punch Monday, kick Tuesday, wrestle around with Wednesday, <laughs> jump up and down with... Yeah, and by Friday, <laughs> beginning of the weekend, I'm all tired out. You know, that's when I was thinking poorly. When I thought, you know that I had to see what happens during the course of the day before I went to enjoy it or not. Now, let me tell you something. <coughs> I don't always mean to go to a meeting seven days a week. If you can, great. But if you can't, you can always read something from the big book or play a cassette or something like, you know, or, or just read something spiritual, and it's like going to a meeting. So I say this. No matter how you feel on a Monday, listen to this. No matter how you feel on a Monday, when you come into these rooms, and I'm just talking about in these rooms now, but you can do any way of seven days a week. This is a seven-day diet I'm going to put you on, seven-day mental diet. Try it and see if it don't work. If it don't work, then you can say, this guy, don't, this guy can't cook. This is a seven-day mental diet, and you just try this. Say on Monday. Start any time you want, children. 
But Monday, you come to a meeting. By come to a meeting, I mean just get some kind of AA or some kind of spiritual growth. And you hear one good thing. No matter how you feel on Monday, you, f you take one good thing you hear in these rooms. Now, understand this. I can hear all these good things. I can read all these good things. I can understand them. And I can say to myself, wow, oh, these are great. This is going to help me a lot. But I don't own any of it. I don't own nothing I hear in these rooms until I practice it in my life out there. Until I practice it. That's when I own it. That's when it becomes part of me. Otherwise, it's just something I heard and sooner or later I'm going to forget it. I mean, that's common sense. Think of all that stuff you learned in school. What do you know today? Go to meetings. But So I don't know nothing till I, till I practice in my life. But I hear one. So when I say add it to my life, this is what I mean, practice it. I hear one good thing on a Monday. I come in feeling, say a person feels real down and real low because they don't understand. Now they're beginning to understand. If I add something to it, I add that much to it. One good thing on Monday. Now I practice in my life. I come in on Tuesday and I hear something else. I got two good things. Now I come in Wednesday. Wow, I add something else to my life. This is how we grow. One bit of the, one little thing at a time. Now I come in on where? We're way up to Thursday already. And we hear something else and add it to our lives. Now by Friday, we're starting to feel like dynamite. We not only got the rest of the weekend ahead of us, we got the rest of our lives ahead of us to keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And that's how we do it. We grow into, we don't grow against. I don't battle the thought of alcohol. At the first few days, sure. But I mean, when that leaves, you don't battle the, you don't fight against. Because when I fight against something, I give power to it. I give it mental power. I give it mental strength. I just grow into the new. Just grow into the new. If I say to all of you, uh, uh, I don't want anybody in this room to think about the old 57 Chevy. I don't want anybody to think about it. I don't want anybody in this room to think about the 57 Chevy with the flat tires. I don't want anybody to think about that. I don't want any of you to think about the 57 Chevy with the torn seat covers. I don't want you to think about that. I don't want you to think about the 57 Chevy with the cracked windshield. I don't want you... What are you thinking about? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You know what I want to think about? That brand new cabin cruiser that Susie got. That brand new green one, Patty's, with the big yellow stripe on the side of it. I want you to think about that green, brand new cabin cruiser with the captain's chair you can sit on and it's like a big shot. I want to think of a brand new cabin cruiser, you know, that we can we can fish off the back end. Think about that brand new cabin cruiser that we can even swim off the back end. Think about that grand, brand new cabin cruiser. We go down in the hole, they got a microwave and this and that. Who's thinking of the 57 Chevy? This, my friends, is how we grow in sobriety. There's only one thing in this life that matters. My God created the world and all was good. All was good. And if I just think into the good, you see, it's not natural like people think if somebody talks about you to be resentful. It's not natural. It's not natural if someone kicks you in the shins to get angry. It's not natural. It's not natural. This guy, you're real nut. I'll tell you why it's not natural. You see, I was created in my God's image. Natural is from the word nature. I'm of God's nature. All things are good. Love. Love overcomes everything. And when you start to grow spiritually, you become spiritually sound, people don't kick you in the shins. They don't do it anymore. They go find somebody else. They don't even know why. But I ain't going to kick him. Now, as you grow spiritually, people will talk about you. They talk about me a lot. And every time they talk about me, I know, I know that I'm doing my father's work and the AA's work. I know that. I mean, there's only, there's only a few mumblers and murmurs, but they are out there, and they will be. But what the hell do they say when I was drinking and, and, and on the front page in the 6 o'clock news all the time? This is a little better, you know. But anyway, I have to tell you this. It's very simple. You know, if you want to be talked about, if you want to be, that's easy. What you got to do is know a lot, and say a lot, and do a lot. They'll talk about you. If you don't want to be talked about, that's very simple too. Don't know nothing. 
don't say nothing, don't do nothing. They got nothing to say about. But I would rather be talked about if what I'm saying and knowing and doing is in a constructive manner. I would rather be talked about. I'm talking about adversely. And those who talk about you sooner or later, I've had people call me, one good fellow called me and says, Jimmy, for two years, I don't even know how I got my number, for two years, every time I heard you at a meeting, I said, that guy's calling that. And he says, but now I'm calling you for help. I'm beginning to realize, you know, it's my own thinking that's keeping me where I am. If I want a better tomorrow, I have to improve my thinking today. Did you know that? My thoughts today are laying my destiny for tomorrow, next week, next month. You see, everything in life, listen to this, and this is, a, this is a good, sober way to look at life. Everything in life, there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, no such thing as good luck or bad luck. There is no luck, neither good nor bad. Everything is a, is a result of cer prior circumstances laid through prior thoughts. I read this guy, Shakespeare. I'm not, a, I, I'm not really a philosopher. I can't talk to these people. I don't know where more they lived. <laughs> but Shakespeare did say, Thou canst pluck a flower without the trembling of a star. And what he's saying is that this life is a network of thoughts. That's what it is. It's not a material world. It's a thought world. You see, the human mind in anything in life, the human mind wants to see it to believe it, right? The spiritual mind believes it first presto it appears it appears and that's what we do blessed are those who believe yet have not seen it's as simple as all that so if i want to change my life i have to change my thinking but i cannot do that if i'm drinking the alcohol will not allow me to do that oh my god oh keeping these children up right <laughs> Sobriety, not drinking a day at a time in absence of inner turmoil. Just listen to this in closing. <laughs> no, I want to help because really, you know, I, I've been through a lot in my life, a lot, as all you have too. Don't, I'm not saying that I've been through more than it, but I know what it is to hurt physically and I know what it is to hurt mentally and emotionally. I went to prison for 40 years that time. Forty years up to Attica where they had the riots and Auburn prison. I've been through it all. I've done it all. And let me tell you something. The worst kind of hurt, the worst kind of hurt is emotional hurt. And every day, the only way I can hurt emotionally is to deal it upon myself. I didn't know that and understand that and believe that. That's why I just want to get this in before I close. And I just want to tell you this, and it's very simple. And try to identify with this. I know you can. That everything is a result of our thinking like begets right no one try this try to feel angry unless you first think angry can't do that every emotion i have in my belly is a result of my thinking every emotion try you cannot feel sad unless first you think sad there's no other way you cannot feel resentful unless first you think resentful. You cannot feel guilty unless first you think guilty. Everything is a result of our own thinking. You cannot be greedy until I first think greedy. Now listen to this. This is a great one. I cannot feel cheerful unless first I think cheerful. There's no other way. No other way possible. This is why I say, we are the victims of ourselves, of our own wrong thinking. Now you know when I say, when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I'm either looking at my very best friend or my very worst enemy, according to the thoughts I have in my mind. And if I got a negative thought, I don't need an enemy. I got myself, all day long, over however long I want to hold that thought. Please take this to bed with you, like begets like. You cannot plant corn and grow cotton. You cannot think poor and feel good. You cannot think poor and attract good things in your life. The only way you can feel good is to think good. The only way you can get good things in your life is to, is, is to think good. And sobriety, my friends, once again, not drinking a day at a time in absence of inner turmoil. And <clears throat> as good as I feel tonight, and as dynamic as I feel, and exciting I feel because I'm, 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 I'm spiritually fulfilled, 
It's compacted in there. I feel so great. I really do. Maybe you can sense it. But if I keep growing, as I said, a day at a time, a day at a time, just adding to what I've got, a year from now, today could be a low point in my life. Imagine how good I'm going to feel five or ten more years from now because I'm going to keep adding to it. I hope the same thing happens to all of you. I wish all of you uh, always remember that there can be no healing until first we admit. We must admit we're powerless and then take on a new way of thinking. And you too can feel dynamic, exciting, fulfilled, and understand the fact that this life is meant for the abundance of it. My God says I come so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And it's out there. First it has to come from within. Thank you so much.